Welcome to the Tone Duff Sessions, hosted by Bruce Duff, author of The Smell of Death, musician, producer, and artist manager. The conversations are recorded at Tone Duff Studio in Hollywood, California, and are a feature of Rare Bird Radio. All right, here we are for uh, Tone Duff Sessions. This is the 19th one. Wow. How, how are we still around? I don't know. But that's nothing compared with how many issues of ugly things that are out in the world. And we are here with the editor, creator, owner, publisher of the Ugly Things magazine, Mike Stacks. We're going to talk about that and his music and his books. So uh, hang on. Uh, and also his lovely wife, Angie, is here, who is a clothes designer and a bass guitarist uh, par excellence. So she may chime in at any time as well. We just don't know. Um, say hi, Mike. Hi, Bruce. Hello, Anja. Say hello. Hey, Bruce. How's it going? Oh, it's good. And you're not just talking to me. You're talking to the whole world out there. They're all very excited to learn more about you guys. Uh, Mike, I think as far back as I can remember that when you first came on my radar, I suppose, I uh, was with the Telltale Hearts. Is that sort of ground zero for your involvement in uh, rock music, or am I missing something? Well, there was some, some prehistory before that. I, I grew up in England, right? and, um, uh, and uh, while I was there, I, heard this, I was listening to John Peel's radio show one night, and I heard this record by a band called The Crawdaddies. They were doing Oh Baby Doll by Chuck Berry. And uh, I couldn't believe that it was a new band. This was... Uh, like uh, late 1979 and I thought that sounds like a band from 1964 because I was very much into the Rolling Stones early stuff the Brian Jones era Rolling Stones the Yardbirds Pretty Things sure. and things like that yeah them and, and they sounded like one of those bands so I was kind of incredulous and I checked into it and I found out that they had an album on something called Vox which was a, um, a division of Bomp Records which I was kind of familiar with because of the Flaming Groovies so uh, I bought the album, loved it. Um, they had put out a couple seven inches. I love those. I decided I'd write a fan letter. I'm just a high school kid in Yorkshire at this point. And uh, I was playing in sort of hobby type band, you know, and, and uh, I wrote a letter to the Crawdaddy's Care of Bomp Records. And, um, and I got a letter back saying, uh, hey, how do you, would you like to move to San Diego? They were from San Diego and, and um, join us, play, be our new bass player. Our bass player just left. And I was just about to sort of uh, graduate high school, so I thought, yeah, that sounds like an adventure that I would like to partake of. So, and you were, did they have any idea if you could even play or anything like well, that? Well, I mentioned that I play bass in a band, you know, and, and, uh, and they were sort of, they said, you know, send us a photo. <laughs> and I was kind of, I sent them a photo, like a photo booth picture. And, uh, and I said, look, I'm really not very good. I've only been playing for a very short time. And, and I, they wrote back like, yeah, you know, I can't, I can't get too worried about how you play. You look you look good. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be fine, that. you know. I, I think, you know, I mean, what they were playing was basically, you know, 12-bar rhythm and blues, you know, so they figured I, I, I probably knew my way around a 12-bar change, which I did. So, I, but, you know, those... So I moved to San Diego at the age of 18. I just came over on a tourist visa and, and stayed ever since. Um, since got legal. But um, yeah, that was kind of my beginning of my rock and roll career. That was kind of like my college, you know? It was kind of like my Hamburg period. Because I really wasn't very good. And, and uh, the guys on the Crawdaddies were actually very good musicians. So it was a really uh, steep learning curve. I had to get up to speed real fast. And were they pretty patient with you and show you a lot of stuff at the same time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Initially, they were patient. <laughs> they <laughs> okay. got a little impatient later on. They'd kick me out, but uh, it, <laughs> okay. that's when I formed the Telltale Hearts. <laughs> so, oh, so wait, now you started the band? Yes. You're, and you're an, I knew you were an original member, but I didn't know you actually yeah, came up with it. Yeah, I, I, they were old friends of mine in San Diego, and, and I was, uh, at that point, I was kind of sick of playing a lot of R&B and soul covers, you know, it just, I wanted to play original music and I wanted to play more like the high energy, you know, sort of English R&B style which the Crawdaddies had started off playing. They were, they were such good musicians that they were, you know, doing more sophisticated things. And so they, they sort of outgrew their own beginnings. Yeah, know? and then they got very purist about it, where they didn't want to even do any songs by white people and stuff like that. So. Right. 
uh, and they didn't really and they were lazy about writing songs because you know if you're into R&B there's so many great R&B songs you, you never run out of songs to cover but I thought we should be doing something original because what's the point of recording these songs you know they've already been done so the the Telltale Hearts was formed to uh, do original music, and and by then also I was very much into sixties uh, garage, you know that kind of stuff. And they weren't so much into that. Um, they thought I was a little crass, you know. But I, I loved, you know, I loved the seeds and the music machine and the thirteen floor elevators. I wanted to do music like that, you know. They wanted to cover Dionne Warwick, you know. I got you. So uh, the Telltale Hearts, I mean, that would have started like what, 83? 83, yeah, right okay. on. Okay, yeah. And that would have been pretty much the very beginning of the of the revival, right? Like the whole like Cavern Club. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, know, the, the Crawdaddies were kind of ahead of the curve in that they were doing that very authentic uh, 60s thing. You know, start, they were doing it since 78. I joined in 80. And uh, at that point, there was the Unclaimed and uh, the Droogs, and you know, out on the East Coast, there was the Chesterfield Kings. I think they were the first band I heard of that was kind of in that yeah. mold. Uh, but uh, yeah, by the by the time the Telltale Hearts formed, you know, there was there was a kind of a, already a, a growing scene, but we were among the first ones. And you were probably one of the very first ones in San Diego, I would guess. Yeah, yeah, we were we were the first one. Well, the Gravedigger Five formed like almost almost uh, the same time as we did. They were friends of ours, and in fact, our first sh show uh, was also the same as their first show. They were, they they played before us, so they actually debuted like an hour before we did. So it wasn't too long after all that kicked into gear that you started Ugly Things, now is it? That was still in the 80s as well? Yeah, I started it in 83, so I was actually oh, doing okay. the Crawdaddies at that point, and uh, did the first issue in early 1983. And just as a big fan you wanted to spread the word I'm assuming like yeah. how, did, how did it get going and like you know what kind of bands were you reaching out to to take part well the, I was old days I was always a big fanzine fan you know I, I used to read um, Bam Balam and Gorilla Beat and Who Put the Bump and and uh, and I was always a writer I always liked to write so it really I just wanted to write about these 60s bands uh, that nobody really seemed to know too much about and it was 1983, it was like MTV time, you know, it was all, it seemed to me everything was like Duran Duran and Flock of Seagulls on the one hand, and then like Motley Crue and, and all that, Van Halen and all that on the other hand, and, and I hated all of that, and wanted to do something, I wanted, why didn't people know about the Seeds and Q65, so I wanted to write about those bands, and, and that's the first issue I wrote about Q65, that was the first article I ever wrote, which was a band from Holland, which nobody knew about and uh, uh, it just kind of snowballed from there that the second issue I interviewed Sean Bonnewell of the music machine which is the first time I'd ever done a interview with a musician you know and so uh, when you did the Q65 thing you were just kind of archiving oh, yeah. information that you exactly I was just writing about how great you hadn't actually were. tracked them down no I it hadn't occurred to me that I could do that uh, yet especially not a band from Holland you know I didn't really know how to go about doing that this was all pre-internet but I, I figured that the next issue I really wanted to write about the music machine and, and they had a um, best of it coming out on Rhino. So I called Rhino Records and, and they put me in touch with Sean Bonnewell. And, and uh, I remember driving up to Los Angeles with my friend Carl Rusk and, and uh, visiting Sean at his apartment. And he seemed like this wise older guy, you know. And when I think of it now, he must have been all of like 43 years old or something, you know, but <laughs> it's funny how that has changed over yes. time, yes. I, see, I think I remember those guys doing, or he put together sort of a revised uh, music machine, was playing like the Coconut Teaser, but I think that was a few years later, like maybe 87 or 88 yeah. or something like that. Yeah, that's right. I didn't. I never did see that, no. It was, uh, I, I remember seeing him and it was sort of an embarrassing show in that Kicked into gear, okay, but somebody in his... I'm trying to remember exactly what happened. I think it was a guitar player or something in his lineup sort of tried to sort of take over in the middle of the show, was doing all like these crazy leads and stuff, and he, he was just really... Yeah. You could tell he was really embarrassed. And That happened a lot back in the 80s when the 60s guys tried to come back because they felt that they should uh, modernize their sound to the current you know thing. Although the musicians that they would get were all out of like 
the metal scene or something like that. So yeah, and you'd would, see these guys with like Charvel guitars or something yeah, like they Megadeth would play, and you're like, no, that's not what I wanted to see. They didn't want to be like an antique and come out and play authentic, you know, 66 versions of their 1966 songs. To them, that seemed like a, you know, would make, they'd feel irrelevant doing that, but they didn't realize that that's exactly what people wanted to hear. They wanted to hear it exactly how it was. And as close as humanly possible, see it sort of how it was. With yes. The, you know, I, I think, especially for people who are way into that, they want to see the authentic, you know, Vox amps and, you know, Gretsch guitars, stuff that was actually made in those days. Right, because people grow up loving that stuff from those records. So, you know, you've listened to Talk Talk 10,000 times. You want, if you went to see someone called The Music Machine, you'd want it to sound as much like the, the 10,000 times you'd heard it on your record player as possible. And they were sort of metal in a way as they were the first band to tune down to C-sharp. <laughs> That's a pretty heavy notion. And, you yeah, know, well, they were the black and very gloves. heavy for the time. I don't know about metal, but they were, they were a heavy band for 1966. Yeah, no kidding. So uh, Ugly Things has become such a, I think, an international institution. It's sort of the, the flag bearer and almost like where you go to get the correct information about any of that stuff and I was just sort of scooping around on the uh, internet yesterday and a thing came up on you as a no it was in all music guide uh, the list of all the uh, albums you've done liner notes on oh, was kind of staggering I, and it hadn't even really occurred to me but I go oh yeah I guess he has done a bazillion of those things did that sort of come about in reverse from reaching out to various labels like say Rhino and say hey I'm looking for this guy and, the, and then those people becoming aware of oh, Mike Stacks is the guy that knows all this stuff. yeah I think that was pretty much it and I started writing all these articles in the fanzine and, and my name got out there as being a guy that knew about these bands so I started getting these liner note jobs and yeah and I guess it's added up over the year I didn't I didn't realize that uh, there was a list online but yeah it, it's I, I lost count I, I didn't I never kept a list myself but uh, it must be you know I don't know if it's in the hundreds or something. I think dozens. it was probably pretty close if it wasn't. Yeah. It was a couple pages on, on All Music Guy. Pretty impressive. So is that something that um, is still a, a vibrant thing? Or has does it feel like most of the 60s and early 70s stuff has kind of been mined already? Is there still more to find? You would think that it had been mined, but it has not. That's the incredible thing is that it just kind of, it's kind of like the gift that keeps on giving. I, rem I remember even back in the um, late 80s, Greg Shaw uh, said to me, you know, that there are probably more 60s stuff released now than there was back in the 60s. Well, I think where you could find it, you know, so yeah. readily, because, you know, as, as you know, I'm from Riverside and we had our own little pretty vibrant scene, but, you know, you even get as far away as Anaheim and you probably can't get the records that are coming out of Riverside. Yeah. And it was that way everywhere. And so Very it, localized, It yes. took all these, you know, guys that started collecting the stuff and putting it on CD, I suppose, in the, in the 90s to actually make it so, you know, if you were in the East Coast, you could hear what was going on somewhere else in the country. Yeah, there was like these ar archivists in different parts of the country sort of uh, documenting their own geographical area, which was great because you'd never hear of these records otherwise, and it still just seems to be stuff out there, you know. Well, I mean, I, I've found compilations, and I'm looking at the stuff, and sometimes I think, like, come on, this is some guy in his bedroom with a four-track making them now <laughs> and just replicating that <laughs> stuff, with, which is, wouldn't be that hard to do, especially, you know, during the four-track era where you kind of sound like that anyways, yeah, no matter I think how hard you try. I, I think it's, you know, it, you know, it's hard to pull the wool over people's eyes that You're way. You're probably right, I'm I, sure. I know a couple people tried it, uh, you know, over the years. They try to slip a new track on, and, and it, you know, it usually gets... The cover usually gets blown. There was a really good one, uh, The Wild Maniacs, uh, Why Ain't Love Fair, which they put on a, at the end of a compilation called The Chosen Few. Really good song, but it I was... I think I have that. Yeah, it was, I think it was Eric Lindgren and some of his friends from New England put it together. Uh, and, you know, the keyboard sound sounded a little bit su suspicious, but hey, they did a great... <laughs> and the singer was a little too derivative of Iggy to have been ah. for, uh, from 66 or 67, but hey, it was a great track. And I, I'm assuming Wild was with a Y? It was with a Y and an E on the and end. And E at the end, yeah. Okay, <laughs> that's pretty authentic. Uh, you know, another funny thing about all the... Uh, I'm thinking of a band like the Miracle Workers that were here, and they came out probably, I guess, in like mid-80s, maybe 86. And by the time you got into the early 90s, 
it's sort of like they traveled in time with their influences. So by the time the early '90s came along, they sounded like a, you know, a '71 Detroit band or something like yeah. that. It yeah. seemed like a lot of bands kind of went through that evolution. Yeah, and it, it's natural thing to happen, I suppose. You know, um, they maybe evolved at you know half the speed of the bands in the '60s. You know, get, people you forget sometimes how quickly things evolved in the '60s. You know, from from I want to hold your hand to uh, you know. Sergeant Pepper was, you know, three years. You know, the diff you know, basically the time in between two Nirvana albums or something like yeah. that. I mean, it, yeah, it's kind of incredible. And why do you think that sort of stopped? It would seem like with all the information you're you're able to have access to, that things would sort of evolve at a faster pace, not a slower pace. Yeah, um, I think now just because things are so fragmented, people kind of dig into one thing and kind of stick with it they find their own little niche rather than uh you know the, the culture's not changing as quickly as it was in the 60s i don't think it's uh it's just people in their little uh little bubbles you know operating in their own little worlds um, so it's not a bit like a tide being swept along like it was in the 60s and then i don't know i just think there's only so many directions you can go with uh you know a few chords and electric guitars you know well, that's true. I mean, if you take it somewhere else too far, it's really not rock, for example, anymore. Yeah, I mean, you I know. guess it evolved into things like hip-hop and stuff like that, when they're using computers and, and samples and beats to make music, and they don't dispense with the instruments altogether. You know, that's, the, I suppose, the evolution. But by that point, I've lost interest because I like to hit guitars and drums and things, you know? Well, another uh, kind of thing involving with technology and how stuff has changed and access to whatever through the computer and what have you. Uh, it seems like a lot of the publications in the magazine, especially music publications, I mean, I was a publicist back in the 80s and yeah, there were so many magazines you could get people in. Now there's a handful. Yeah. And most of them, when you, you know, I, you pick up Rolling Stone, it looks like, you know, TV Guide used to look or something. It's so small. <laughs> yes. Whereas you guys have gotten fatter and you're coming out twice as often. You're coming out four times a year now. Three times a year now, yeah. So oh, I thought it was four. Yeah. Sorry. So yeah, it's, well, I think um, it's kind of like, uh, because a lot of the competition, I don't know if we ever had that much competition because we do such a, what we do is such a niche thing. But um, so, so many of the other music magazines have gone away or they've gone online that it helps us get stronger. You know, we kind of uh, suck up the, those uh, readers and, and those advertising dollars to some extent. And um, I think the other thing is what we do with ugly things is, is different because uh, it doesn't really work in an online context as much because we do a lot of longer, you know, we do a lot of long form articles. You know, we might have an article that's like 10, 20 or 30,000 words. You don't want to read that on your, you know, iPad or your iPhone. You know, your eyes would start bleeding. Yeah, I think oh, that's a good point. But to sit down with a, with a nice paper book and read, you know, it works. So, uh, and then, the, and, I, and I also equate it very much with uh, the argument of, of uh, MP3s versus vinyl. I feel like a paper magazine is like vinyl. It's a permanent record. It's not something that's going to vaporize like a website or a blog will. And I think a lot of people that collect music, that collect vinyl, they also want to collect this information in some kind of tangible, physical form that they can archive and reference and they'll know it's there it won't have uh, disappeared into the ethernet you know so you're i think what you're saying is there's a whole mindset with people that get into that whole realm whether it's uh, you know more vintage music yeah. and you know just understanding it and collecting it and getting into it more are you seeing uh from where you are as a publisher are you seeing a newer crowd of younger people getting on board with ugly things and being interested in 60s and early 70s yeah, stuff absolutely yeah and are, do they reach out to you do you have any idea of what's inspiring them to go back which if you're a kid now that's stuff that is even you know might have been kind of weird to your grandparents much less you know your older brother <laughs> so that's a big step i mean back when we were kids like it you know we would never look at music that old yeah well i mean Speaking of myself, you know, I, went, I got into older music by looking at the influences of the bands I was into, you know, so I got into Muddy Waters because the Rolling Stones mentioned him, so I looked into it, and, and I think that's how a lot of us found 
these bands, you know, uh, people that were into punk rock started looking at the roots of punk rock and found, you know, garage rock and everything like that. But now all of that is out there uh, on the internet, on YouTube. So young kids are just, you know, going down these rabbit holes and discovering these bands and um, getting into the 60s bands, bands that were like, you know, that were happening before their parents were born, let alone before they were born. And, and yeah, and, and they and they find ugly things, and uh, they seem to like reading, uh, you know, a tangible paper magazine too. And I get emails and letters and stuff from these, you know, teenagers. Um, and it's always been that way. There's always been these teenagers that find, you know, find find the music somehow. Yeah, I mean, I still am amazed. Uh, I work with the the Radio Moscow guys who are down your way. Yeah, I went to the guitar player's house, and he's got like a you know, a mountain of this vinyl. I'm like breezing through it, and I'm like, wait a minute, what is this stuff? And I'm looking at it, it's all like records from basically when I was in high school, 72 to 75. And uh, but I, and it's all heavy kind of, you know, Zeppelin-y, Deep Purple Rock, which was sort of my sweet spot at that age. Yeah. Yet I don't know any of it. I'm like, where was this stuff? Like, wouldn't they have been marketing to me at that time? <laughs> but where was it? And and he he kind of doesn't even know himself, but he's tracked it down and amassed this collection. And to me, it's fascinating. As somebody you know is presenting similar things to people nowadays, how do you find something new that hasn't been unearthed? Where where does one look? It's it's weird. I think the the past is more of a level playing field. I mean, back then when you were listening to that stuff, you know, there was enough Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple records to you know to take all your allowance. You know, so you didn't have time to find the find these more obscure bands. Um, so and that was what was on the radio. That's the bands sure. that were coming to your city that you went to see play and had these great experiences. Um, now people are finding this music uh, on YouTube or whatever, you know, so they can they can find, um, you know, some obscure garage band that's on Back from the Grave almost as easily as they can find The Who, you know. So it's, uh, you know, some of, <laughs> some of these kids know more about the obscure bands than they know about the better Of course, bands. but are you as, you know, sort of the taste maker, are you still finding things that you've find worthy to turn other people on to? Yeah, absolutely, always. Um, because I have a lot of, I'm in contact with a lot of people that are into this music, people are constantly turning me on to stuff. Because I'm tracking down musicians to interview, many times they have unreleased songs and things like that. So this is kind of a new strata of, you know, rock if you will you know we've dig, dug down through all the obscure records now we're getting to like the records that didn't even come out for whatever sure. reason so those tapes those acetates are still uh, around and we find them and put them out or find someone to put them out well to that end uh, I'd like to know what causes someone to become to you something that goes beyond just a, you know it's going to be an ugly things article into something you're going to dedicate a chunk of your life to and create a, you know a book such as you did with Craig Smith which seemed like th that must have been just a huge task I, I believe it took you 15 years it did yeah I, it's really just down to what uh, stimulates my imagination you know I, I when I look for a band I don't know what's going to be there sometimes uh, you talk to them and there's really not that much you know it was something that they did and it didn't mean as much to them as maybe you think it might. Other times you find them and you find it was something that they really felt passionately about and that there was a very complex and interesting backstory behind it. And that's the ones that, that get me excited. And with the case of Craig Smith, it was a record that nobody knew anything about. Um, the album uh, Apache Inca was a double album credited to Maitreya Kali. And um, Craig Smith had this name was buried amongst a bunch of very cryptic uh, liner notes so nobody knew anything apart from the fact that it seemed to be an album by uh, somebody who was mentally disturbed in some way and I just became... And you could tell that by listening to it? Um, no, that it, what the mentally disturbed part really came from the album cover it was a gatefold cover and it had all this sort of a manifesto that was obviously the writings of somebody who was you know 
somehow schizophrenic. They were talking about becoming the king of the world in the year 2000. They were talking about how they were the chosen one. They were the Messiah. They were the next Buddha. They were, you know, the next Hitler. And and Jesus rolled into one. So I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. I put it on and I found, no, this is not some weird rambling crazy stoned out hippie stuff this is somebody who can really sing and play and craft a song like a very a very professional very sort of hit worthy level you know here's a guy who's writing songs that could stand alongside the birds and the buffalo springfield for example or um or on the other hand these sort of acoustic songs that could be Tim Buckley or Tim Hardin songs are really beautiful and well crafted. So that was the paradox. Who was this mystery Maitreya Kali guy who was clearly on some level insane, but on the other level, a super talented musician that making this music that's really touching me and really uh, blowing me away because how come I'd never heard of it before? And how did you hear of it? Uh, a reissue came through my door, you know, just someone, a label in Germany had bootlegged the album, they sent me the CD to, you know, uh, to review in the magazine, so I, you know, I go through all these CDs, sure. and LPs, and some are good, some are bad, and this one was just, I couldn't stop listening to it, and I wanted to find the story, and it took 15 years because it was just very difficult. The, all the writing on the album was all I had to go on, that was sort of a map but a very confused and cryptic map, you know. It was <laughs> so it was you that connected the dots back to Craig Smith? Did yeah, well, his name was right on there. It says, it says Craig Smith, and it says his date of birth. But, you know, Smith is the most common name in the world, um, but it at least gave me a starting point, and I was gradually able to piece it together. And finally, I started finding people that knew him and finding out the story behind this music, and, and it just seemed to get more and more interesting. The more I dug, but it was never quite over, and, and I, I eventually found a, a private investigator because I was getting nowhere. There seemed to be really no trace of this guy, and uh, he was able to say, you know, he has got no credit record. Uh, uh, these addresses are all very old, and most of them are down at heel motels. His last known addresses is basically a transient motel on Hollywood Boulevard, and and. Uh, I called there and they said, uh, oh yeah, he left a few weeks ago, but he's not all there, you know, he's he's a very nice guy, but he's not all there. So I started trying to find this homeless, basically this homeless person, Craig Smith, and uh, I tracked him to Studio City in North Hollywood area, and I had some friends there that started seeing him uh, and telling me the places that he would be and I would drive up and try to find him but he was never there when I was around so this went on story. for years really um, just trying to find this guy and my f <clears throat> the friends that live they live there so they would you know just be on the street oh there he is at the bus stop you know every two months and they would say here's Mike Stax's phone number he really wants to talk to you but the thing was this guy Craig uh, sometimes he would talk a little bit and other times he would just blank them or walk away you know he did have he was basically homeless uh sometimes living in you know you know really seedy hotels that you rent by the week or whatever and uh he didn't really want to talk to anybody well at this point in time would he because i have no idea would he have been receiving any kind of like uh royalties still from the songs written back in the day which well yeah that was the th yeah because we we didn't mention that but he you know one of the f things that i uncovered was that he had written songs that were that that had been recorded by major artists he wrote salesman for the monkeys which still sells which still you know sells and was in an episode of the monkeys he wrote two songs for andy williams one of which was on you know andy williams uh 1965 Christmas album which sold a bazillion copies of like a gold record um, and he wrote a song for Glenn Campbell uh, which was on one of Glenn Campbell's albums in the 60s and Glenn Campbell performed it on TV but you know I called Glenn Campbell's publishing company and they said oh yeah Craig yeah uh, he used to come by every now and then and you know uh, he was he was a weird guy and some of the people would disappear out of the office when they'd see him coming uh, we haven't heard from him in a while I, uh, I can forward a letter to the last known address I have you know 
of course that was another dead end but so he hadn't collected uh, any song royalties for uh, uh, some time so he was basically living on um, uh, whatever uh, disability I think he was getting some kind of disability checks uh, and uh, whatever money he could scrape up I guess I don't really know interesting so I as I'm looking at this, what I, I haven't read the book myself, but checking into the story as much as, as I've been able to, I mean, if you go back to the 60s when he was placing these songs, he was a regular on a TV show, and, yeah. he, fil and he made a TV show pilot, so he must have been reasonably together at that point. And, and then, what, do you have any idea what caused the flip? Yeah, this was, this was all part of, this is all that took years to piece together. So yeah, he was right out of high school, he was hired to be on the Andy Williams show. They had a band called the Good Time Singers, which was basically uh, they were hired to they were put together to replace the new Christy Minstrels who left. So they were one of these sort of ten-piece folk groups, men and women, or young, smiling, fresh-faced people singing behind Andy Williams on the Andy Williams show every week. And he did that for three years. Um, and uh, then he was cast as the lead in a TV pilot called The Happeners which was being cast at the same time as the monkeys in fact he also auditioned for the monkeys he was in the top 20 the monkeys but uh he decided to go with happen and so he was crossed off the list at that point but he probably could have been peter talk you know um so the happeners was filmed and uh, it was really good but the network decided not to air it he then um signed a Capitol Records as a duo with the uh, and that was Chris called Chris and Craig and they recorded for Capitol recorded a single and then Mike Nesmith became their producer and they became the Penny Arcade and they recorded an unreleased album as the Penny Arcade so these were all things I was able to piece together so what happened to this smiling successful you know fresh-faced young man by all accounts a very happy charismatic outgoing guy to turn into this Maitreya Kali guy well, I found out what happened was he got all this money from his songs that he made, uh, especially like the Andy Williams and the Monkey songs. There was quite a considerable amount of money. He decided he would leave the band and go travel. And specifically, he wanted to go to India. He became interested in uh, Eastern religion. He became very, uh, very interested in LSD and opening his mind that way. So he wanted to travel the tri hippie trail which begins in um, Turkey, um, Istanbul, and goes through India to Nepal. And uh, so I found out that he did that. Uh, what I eventually found out that along the way in Afghanistan, Kandahar, in fact, he was attacked and uh, brutally beaten and raped by a bunch of guys and ended up in a lunatic asylum in Kandahar. And then when he came back to the States in uh, 69, he was, at that point, he's like, I'm not Craig Smith anymore. My name is Maitreya. And uh, I have special powers, you know. All the people that used to know him and then knew him as Maitreya were just completely creeped out, of course. Because, you know, I, I talked to one guy, he said, you know, we were lying on a, we were lying on the back, in the backyard and the, breeze rustled the blades of grass and, and uh, Craig said I did that <laughs> that's the good Lord thing that he was I, and that was a typical story that it, that uh, I would hear from people he started getting scary and uh, he, he would uh, and obviously people pushed him away and, and uh, cut ties with him he had a black widow spider tattooed on his forehead between his eyes and uh, he wouldn't be Craig anymore, he only would want to be Maitreya. But that's the period where he was still able to record and put out these uh, Apache and Inca albums, which is the ones I heard. And were those self-released? Did he have enough they money? Were so he was actually paying to go to the plant and he was together enough to like yeah, make yeah. a gatefold album, right? Yeah, and, and continue to some of these songs were recorded after his return from the hippie trail, after he became Maitreya his musical skills were still there. That was the one time people said where he was normal. He was completely nuts. And then he'd pick up his guitar and start singing and he was, and he was a different person. You know, he was singing this beautiful music. And put down the guitar and start talking again and you wouldn't know what the hell he was saying, you know. 
Um, so he was able to get these together and they were pressed up in a quantity of maybe 100, 200 copies. You know, they were just vanity pressings. Um, and some of the music was the stuff that he'd recorded uh, with the Penny Arcade, the stuff that Mike Nesmith produced. They were compilations of music that he'd recorded over sort of a four or five year period from 67 to 71 or something like that. Um, as best as I can put together and um, and then he put them out with his weird artwork and all this writing about you know his beliefs and everything but my belief was that and also in between some of the songs there would be field recordings he'd done him talking uh, on his travels and there were pictures of him on his travels in South America and such like uh, on the album covers and my theory was he knew he was going mad and maybe would not always be able to make his music so he wanted to put together this album as kind of a last will and testament you know like this is this is my this is what i do this is my music you know this is my message to the world you know he thought maybe if people heard his music you know he would i don't know if he would become the king of the world but at least here was his music while it was still around and i found that incredibly uh powerful you know it's and he's passed away as of now, correct? But it wasn't that long ago, am I right uh, about 2012. this? 2012, so I was, you know, this was all the time where I was looking for him and, and came close so many times and, and I have photographs of him holding the magazine, you know. I got that close, my friends would find him, but I could never connect with him. Uh, and eventually um, he died in North Hollywood Park in a sleeping bag. And um, in 2012, and that's how it ended up. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the Apache and Inca, the original album, sell for thousands of dollars. In fact, there was one uh, less than, I think about three months before he died, one sold on eBay for over $10,000. Holy cow. Of which he sees not, never would have seen no. a penny of. No. As right. the irony goes. Yes. Um, so with a lot of these cases, I mean, not that there are a lot of these cases, but there have been some. Um, you know, of course, Rocky and, and Sid Barrett and uh, Skip Spence. And a lot of times, you know, historians and so forth go back and they're like, oh, these are acid casualties. Do you believe that? Do you think that's what it is? Or do you think there's something else involved or, or that the mental illness preceded the acid and the acid just sort of kicked it into high gear? Well, yeah, I think the acid was a part of it. But, the, but yeah, it's one of the things I write about. One of the first things I write about in the book is this sort of, uh, trope we have of the acid casualty. You know, we we sort of romanticize that as music fans. You know, these guys that took too much LSD and floated off into some kind of Alice in Wonderland world, and you know, continue to make this mystical music. You know, like Sid Barrett or, or Rocky, uh, and um, you know, really, it's those stories are. It's not romantic. It's very sad because you know what we're talking about really is, is mental illness that was triggered either by LSD or other factors you know or at least magnified by it and, mm -hmm. and, and, um, uh, and that's what happened to Craig you know fortunately you know for someone like Sid Barrett he, he had a family and uh, that was able to sort of at least where he could maintain a life where you know he was taken care of and he was apparently still reaping in some pretty big royalties from the Pink Floyd catalog but um, someone like Craig, uh, he did not have, uh, you know, that faculty, you know, or he'd burned too many bridges. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and beyond the acid, there was, uh, you know, the attack in Kandahar must have been just a horrifyingly. I mean, he, I think he was he was taking LSD on a daily basis while he was doing this. So no doubt when he was attacked and raped, he was also on LSD, which could only have made it worse. And uh, no wonder he kind of blacked out that whole previous life that he'd had. He, you know, he must have been carrying around a lot of, you know, really complex and disturbing stuff in his head. Um, so yeah, uh, the acid casualty is, uh, yeah, it's a handy little cute name to hang on something. But, uh, you know, when you peel back the, you know, the paisley curtains of that <laughs> that you people put sure. over that you know it's it's really a very very sad and, and um, unromantic uh, I agree yeah well uh, the book is swim through the darkness want to make sure people know that uh, now before that you wrote a book that uh, 
I have made my way through and it felt was fantastic, which was called Like Misunderstood, which also goes back to some uh, guys that came from my hometown and were just one of the most fantastic and still kind of undiscovered uh, American rock and roll bands, that being The Misunderstood, uh, whom I just totally love. But interestingly, that story also contains a uh, pilgrimage to India, though maybe a bit of a different backstory yeah. behind it. But that's... It's just incredible that these two musicians that sort of had basic, you know, kind of down-to-earth uh, American background, like, I'm out of here, I'm going to India, I'm going to figure out what it's all about, and, and became such a big part of both of those stories. Yeah, yeah, there's something that fascinates me ab about that aspect of it, and... Um you know, a lot of a lot of people in the '60s were were you know exploring those things. Obviously, you know, and inspired by the, the Beatles and you know, Maharishi and all that kind of thing. Um, the misunderstood, as you said, you know, a very a very different story to Craig Smith's story. You know, um, and the, the Vietnam uh, War figures into that heavily. And one of the reasons that Rick Brown, the lead singer, you know, fled to India was because uh, he had been drafted and he didn't want to go to Vietnam as a pacifist. You know, he, he didn't believe in that, so he decided he would uh, go instead to India and live in an ashram, which he did for many years as, as a uh, Hindu monk, which is uh, pretty remarkable. And uh, it, it wasn't, he didn't come back until uh, the late 70s uh, after uh, uh, President Carter had pardoned all the uh, draft... Uh, all the AWOL guys. Yeah, the, all the AWOL guys and the draft dodgers were pardoned, so he was able to return. But then the uh, the really miraculous part of that story was him discovering a diamond mine, of all things. A ruby mine. turning his <laughs> fortune around as, as well. Yes, it was. it's really... I, the book was co-written with, with Rick, and, um, yeah, he happened upon this situation where somebody had uh, discovered this ruby mine in India so he began to get into uh, smuggling rubies into other parts of Asia and then from that he became very interested in uh, in the mystical powers of different stones and things like that which you know is a big thing in Asia and and he began designing his own jewelry you know which is based on sort of uh, Hindu astrology and Buddhist astrology, you know, and uh, you know, people, if people are sick, they need this combination of stones, and if they're, uh, you know, want luck and love, they might have this combination of stones, all based on when they were born. So this all came out of uh, <laughs> this ruby mine that he became involved in in the 70s in India. And uh, I'm sure you just found this whole trail by just obviously starting the, I think it was a three-part uh, article on the misunderstood in your magazine but at some point when you're talking to Rick like I think there's a book here are you into it is that basically how yeah, that came about? Well I think um, Rick's Rick is very ambitious and he um, I mean he was what drove the misunderstood that's what made them go from Riverside to England to try and make it was really Rick Brown uh, uh, just the amb incredible ambition he has uh, as we started telling this story uh, we, kept, we kept saying this is this would be a great movie so we decided we'd start working on a screenplay together, which is what we did. We wrote a screenplay, and uh, we were kind of shopping that around a little bit. And Rick was uh, Rick lives in Thailand, and he was he talked to some producers in India that were interested in it. Nothing really ended up happening with the screenplay, but uh, we thought maybe we'll turn it, the screenplay into a book. And and it was written in kind of a a light, it's not in a super factual style, everything is factual, but it's written in the style of a screenplay, in the style of a novel, uh, and um, and we thought that might just be another way to get the story out there and get people interested should they want to make a movie. So that's really what that book was about. What kind of responses were you were you getting when you pitched it as, as a film? Well, I, uh, the usual that you might predict, like nobody wants to see a movie about a band no one's heard of, that kind of thing, and um, others, they just couldn't quite get their heads around it, you know. Where was the hero? You know, if the hero was this guy that was dodging the draft, became a monk, sort of, and, and it was almost like the story was also so complex, how are you gonna get this into a 90 minute movie? 
It always needed to be a mini series or something like that. Well, maybe now's the time. You got all this stuff on like Netflix. And, yeah, now, yeah. You know, there's the, all these things that are like that. Yeah, when we were doing this was in the early 2000s, and then things have changed a lot since yes, then. Yes, a lot. So maybe, uh, maybe that is the answer. All right, who's listening out there? Pay attention. This could be a big thing. <laughs> Don't miss the opportunity. Uh, well, so what's happening uh, with the loons? Of course, you're still an active uh, musician yourself. Right. Um, yeah, the loons now been going uh, for 20 years, uh, and we've released four albums in that time, and we're just right now putting together sort of a best of the loons release for Burger Records. So we re we just kind of pick tracks off of each of the albums and some rarities and things that were on flexi discs and singles and compilations, and put together like a one hour best of the loons. And uh, that's going to be coming out, uh, I guess, this summer, I think they said. It's going to be called Diamonds, Garbage, and Gold. So, uh, and we're working on new material, always working on new stuff. We seem to put out an album every three or four years. It takes that long. Not because we, you know, we record them pretty fast after we write them, but just, uh, it just seems to take a while to get enough songs for to do an album. Gotcha. We, you know, we, we're playing live. We're, we've all got day jobs and families and you know it, it seems like you know people aren't demanding a loons album every year you know or three loons albums a year you know we're not the not the beatles or the stones in the 60s you know with the uh original stuff you're working on would that come out on burger as well or is that remain to be seen um remains to be seen what who will release that um no we with the albums we want to stick with bomb yeah really, and we're going to do some singles i think with uh dirty water in england again okay yeah i think that's the next thing on the docket is a, another dirty water single but yeah bomb has put out the last two albums and we like being on bomb records sure there's definitely a heritage there yes uh, but it's cool burger's cool too in that they do their whole like you know their festivals and all if you can get in on that yeah that's a huge exposure thing too right yeah we're, we're, good, we're good friends with those burger guys and they get it out there they reach a lot a lot of the younger audience too which is i think one reason we wanted to uh, it was their idea to put together this best of the loons cassette you know just to kind of get our music out to people that maybe not checked it out yet yeah. Uh, which means if, if you're they're getting it through the cassette those are usually people that are uh, it's amazing it's just they're the, the kids you know like I think if we plow our way through this house here I can probably come up with six or seven non-working cassette players but uh, <laughs> to actually listen to something on cassette for me I don't, I don't have that capability any longer yeah I still do but uh, I know burger now they are releasing uh, an, their own burger cassette player which also has the um, capacity to convert your cassettes <laughs> to MP3. Oh, that's amazing. So you can plug your cassette no, I knew you could do that with vinyl. I didn't know you could do it with cassette. I yeah, guess it makes it, sense. Well, I think they came up with this because it seems perfect. That, uh, so they bypass CDs and vinyl altogether. You just convert your cassette to an MP3. Oh, but so. that's a player. Now, actually, uh, Elsa bought me something. I don't think it's a player. I think it's just a gadget. We haven't messed with it yet, but... Uh, we're doing some cleaning and um, came across an interview I did with Lemmy and she goes oh you should put this on your podcast everybody wants to know what Lemmy was like yeah. and like, well, great what am I how am I gonna do that you know so bought this thing and here I haven't done it yet but uh, I think it could be I, I mean I have so many of those laying around my uh, my first interview that I ever did with anybody was Frank Zappa Wow. Talk about a trial by fire I was so petrified and he was in a particularly ugly place as he was getting sued by Warner Brothers and you know, his wow. old manager and all this. So he was just not a happy camper and some was dork in, kid. In from person a, or? In person at the uh, the Beverly Hills Hotel. Wow. He, like he was even like yelling at people out the window and you know, he, was, he was in a bad mood and it was really something interesting to, it was a, an eye opener. I'm glad I did it. Was he okay with you or was he? Yeah, I mean, for the most part. I asked him some things that got him going in, in a negative way. But, you know, <laughs> Frank Zappa, what do you want? Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. Uh, what have we forgot? Anything else you want to p uh, promote or let people know about that's coming up? Well, with the Lewins, we're going hopefully to Italy and Spain next spring. Yeah. yeah so we we've gone back to Europe. Not this year, but next year. And Italy and Spain is kind of the still the sweet spot for garage rock in Europe, correct? It seems to be, yeah. We've been to Spain a few times. So I've yet to be 
go to Italy though Anya's been with uh, previous bands that she's been in so it's just we've just been waiting for the right opportunity to come along to go to Italy it looks like that might finally be all falling into place so that will be fun and Spain is great you know we love it there and they seem to remember us so it's good well that is, I can't remember who I was talking to just the other day uh, but they were saying like you know uh, American fans very short memory you know yeah Everything's they, they revolve through stuff in a year or what have you. But European fans, if they like something, they tend to like it just forever. As long yeah. as it's still around, they'll go see it. Yeah, yeah, they're very appreciative of it. You know, especially if you've come all the way from America, you know, they'll get out of the house and go to the show. And in America, sometimes it's difficult to get people to come out of their living rooms, come see you play. Well, it's funny you say that. I used to, that's what I used to say about San Diego in particular. Like it's the hardest city to motivate people down to the venue. It used to drive me nuts because no, it's so close to us. You know, they just pop down to San about Diego. San Diego. Yeah, I mean, they, it's the same with the sports teams. You know, they they can never fill the stadiums there. You know, I wonder why that is. Uh, You're already in San say, Diego. It's already beautiful. Why do you got to go do something? Yeah, we're going to the beach. I don't know what we're doing. It's getting better, though. We're doing like an ugly things club now every other month as well, just to get people out and listen to cool music. And where's that? Friends. We have it at a place called Space. Which oh, which used to be the hideout. the hideout. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's a small venue, but it kind of gives us the opportunity to just spin records we like and invite bands to play we would like to hear and obviously have other people here too. So that's been kind of a fun thing. Yeah. It, San Diego's got a pretty good scene going right now and people seem pretty motivated to go out. So it's gotten better. Who's the best new band? Um... Well, I mean, Schizophonics have been around a while, but yeah, they're like the hot band right now for sure. They're uh, playing down here in a few weeks. I think right after this comes out, they're playing at uh, Maui Sugar Mill. We'll be playing with them. It's a uh, celebration for Livation, who are celebrating 30 years, which is pretty amazing. Oh, wow. A local show we have on college radio that have bands on playing live once a week. There's another band called Los Sweepers that we like a lot too. Los Sweepers? Los Sweepers, yeah. Okay. They are... Um, they're all uh, Latino guys, and they do uh, kind of Mexican 60s stuff in Spanish. Oh, that's very so cool. So they're like, you know, they do things like Wild Thing and Hang On Sloopy and things like that. And it's, it feels like a band that you would see in a, in a club in Tijuana in 1966 or 67. Cool. Well, I hope they come up here. I think internationally also, like the Grigri, that's one of our favorite bands from France at the moment. All young guys, really exciting band, one of the most... What are they called? Le Grigri. Like G-R-I-S? G-R-Y-S. G-R-Y-S, because there was Grigri a few years yeah. back, and but I thought they were gone. And they're going to be uh, on tour in, in California in, in August. We're going to play a few shows with them also in L.A. Oh, cool. Fantastic band. They're really kind nice. of, it's a little bit like what the crawdaddies were doing in the beginning. All right. That it's like the pretty things downliner sec, but except they're way better. Uh, really better than the downliner sec? No, 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 better than the crawdaddies. <laughs> okay. Right. I don't know about better than the downliner yeah, sec. They're pretty good. Yeah, they're really, really great, great band. Well, cool. Uh, well, I can't thank you guys enough for coming by and, you know, taking some time out of the schedules and everything. I'm looking forward to seeing you again in August. Well, thanks for having uh, us. That'll, be, that'll a, be killer. been a pleasure talking. Thank All you. right, great. Um, thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to The Toned Up Sessions, a feature of Rare Bird Radio. Join us in the coming weeks for guests including Harley Flanagan, New York-based hardcore icon, photographer and book event curator, Lisa Johnson, and punk rock legend, Jack Grisham. <laughs>